Stand by, for it is October 12th, and 1012 signals Stand by in later versions of the 10 code, developed decades ago to assist communications in the days when signal times were short. Earlier versions of 1012 signified that officials were present. That's a status that's usually valid in any given edition of Charlottesville Community Engagement. I'm Sean Tubbs, 10 times 5. In this edition, the Greene County Board of Supervisors are taking applications for someone to be the interim representative for the Standardsville District. Several updates from members of the Charlottesville Planning Commission, including a forthcoming tree canopy study, but no report from the University of Virginia. And the Charlottesville Planning Commission doesn't take action quite yet on the development code after an 80-minute deliberation. In today's first subscriber-supported shout-out, are you looking for a free fall event for your family that will help raise money for cancer treatments for patients at UVA's Children's Hospital? Mark your calendar for October 22nd and Jackfest at Foxfield in Albemarle County. That's going to be from noon to 4 p.m. at Foxfield. The free event is named for Jack Callahan, a boy who beat back metastatic cancer after a 13-month course of intensive treatments in 2019 and 2020. Jackfest raises funds for Ronald McDonald House to support families who need assistance while other treatments are underway. Events are going to include kids running races and family relays, including a superhero dash, kids mighty one mile run, and a child parent relay race. Family activities such as an inflatable obstacle course, bounce house, and slides, a petting zoo, and a truck touch with emergency vehicles, adult and kid food options, including food trucks and local beer and wine. While the event is free, people can sign up for the races and the team fundraising challenge at the JackFest website at www.jackfest.net. The sudden resignation of Abby Heflin as the Standardsville representative on the Greene County Board of Supervisors has opened up a process to find a replacement. The four remaining elected officials took an action just after their closed session on Tuesday. Here is Chair Dale Herring, the at-large representative, followed by Steve Bowman, the Monroe District representative. Do we have any business coming out of closed session? Mr. Chair. Yes, sir. Sir, I'd like to make uh, a motion directing the county attorney to file a petition with the court for a writ of special election to be held on November 5, 2024 for the supervisor position of the Standardsville District. That's a year away, and so in the meantime, the county will take applications for people who want to serve as an interim. Here is Greene County Administrator Kathy Shafrick. We will be asking all interested parties for running for the Standardsville District to fill out this interest form. Are you interested? You'll have to live within the district's boundaries, and you can check that on the voter registration page. If you qualify, there's a link to the applications page in the newsletter. You can go fill it out. Applications will be taken through October 24th. The intention is to have interviews that will be set up for Friday, November 3rd. The final decision will be made in closed session on the next regularly scheduled board meeting um, after that period of time, which will be November 14th. 
Heflin was elected in 2021 in a very close race and took office in January of 2022. There are three magisterial races on the ballot this November. At-large Supervisor Dale Herring did not seek another term. Independents Todd Michael Sansom and Francis Xavier McGuigan are on the ballot to represent the whole county. Monroe District Supervisor Steve Bowman opted not to run for another term, but no one qualified to be on the ballot, and so whoever gets the most write-in votes will be elected. Davis Lamb is running unopposed for another term in the Ruckersville District. A key highlight of the meeting of any appointed or elected body that works on land use issues is the section where members make reports. Commissioner Kareem Habab is a member of the Citizens Transportation Advisory Committee, which is part of the transportation planning framework operated by the Thomas Jefferson Planning District Commission. That group is overseeing the preparation of a new long-range transportation plan. And at the October 10th meeting of the Charlottesville Planning Commission, Habab reported on some of the analysis of public input to date. They said there's a strong preference on prioritizing multimodal projects rather than traffic congestion reduction. To learn more about the Moving Toward 2050 plan, check out a story map created by the TJPDC. There's a link in the newsletter. Commissioner Rory Stolzenberg is a member of the Technogoal Committee that advises the Metropolitan Planning Organization's Policy Board. That's the regional decision-making body for transportation projects, and Stolzenberg updated the commission on the two pipeline studies underway on Ivy Road and Barracks Road. The hope is to, uh, you know, make those have better facilities, uh, including, and especially for bike pad, uh, though Barracks Road will be a problem, especially at the uh, interchange. Habab is also a member of the Tree Commission and had this information to report. We have great news that we got awarded $300,000 through the Inflation Reduction Act that will help us do another canopy study with on-the-ground analysis and inventory of both public and private properties. That award announcement has not yet been made. A study from 2022 found that the total amount of land covered by trees decreased from 45% to 40% from 2014 to 2018. Habab also reminded commissioners that the city intends to plant dozens of trees this November on public land, as I reported in September. Habab reported on other efforts underway as well. Relief is going to be doing some planting in the Rose Hill neighborhood of about 75 trees. And the Cats, Charlottesville Area Tree Stewards, will be planting about 20 trees at Reeves Park. Commissioner Philip Duranzio said the Housing Advisory Committee met several times in the past month. The group includes Duranzio and the leaders of several nonprofit housing organizations. All of those meetings heavily focused on exactly what you'd expect, which would be zoning, anti-displacement, and, and the like. We have produced some work product that's been shoved towards the Planning Commission and some uh, interim stuff that we are working on. More on that as we get to that section of the meeting. There was no report from the University of Virginia's representative on the Charlottesville Planning Commission. Here's Bill Palmer, the GIS planner for the UVA Office of the Architect. Yeah, I think everything that I mentioned last month is still uh, operable. Nothing new to report. The UVA Board of Visitors has met once since the Planning Commission's last regular meeting. 
Here's an update on what I was able to write in the past six weeks or so. These are just headlines. You can go back and click on them in the newsletter should you want to. Here are the headlines. UVA has picked two groups to move forward with affordable housing projects. UVA panel signs off on design for video scoreboard. Now is new chair of the UVA's land use committee. Buildings and Grounds Committee review designs for Biotech Institute, Energy Plant, and Garage at Fontaine Research Park. Renovations and additions coming to UVA Center for Politics. Commissioner Rory Stolzenberg is the new Planning Commission representative on the Land Use and Environmental Planning Committee. That's a closed-door body that consists of city, Albemarle County, and UVA officials. The charter for LUPEC was changed on July 21st to make clear it is not a public body, unlike the Planning and Coordination Council that replaced it in late 2019. The minutes for that July 21st meeting state that these are the reasons for LUPEC's existence. Allow professional staff to collaborate and develop solutions on a continuous basis with regularly scheduled reports to leadership of all three entities. Retain visibility into the substance of the work via publicly posted agendas, notes, and materials. According to the July 21st, 2023 minutes, the group was to have met on August 18th. However, the LUPEC website does not list a meeting from that date or from September. 10-12. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and in today's second Patreon-fueled shout-out, Architectural firm Design Develop wants you to know about a new service aimed at the development community that may not be widely known yet, 3D point cloud scanning. That's a technique that uses specialized equipment such as 3D scanner systems to gather a large amount of data points that represent the surface of the scanned object or scene. The applications of 3D point cloud scanning are extensive and cover various fields, including architecture, construction, cultural heritage preservation, virtual reality, industrial design, manufacturing, and more. These applications require accurate 3D spatial information, and Design Develop's workflow provides precise and comprehensive results, all while being more cost-effective than traditional methods. Design Develop has expertise in this workflow for their own needs and now has a dedicated team offering this service in the Charlottesville and Albemarle area. If you're involved in the real estate, design, or construction industry, feel free to contact Design Develop for more information or a free quote. Visit their website for an introductory video that captures the 3D point cloud scanning of the downtown transit center, and there's also a booklet that will explain more. This is Charlottesville Community Engagement, as I said, and now another story about the development code. After spending several hours on two rezonings under the city's existing development rules, the Charlottesville Planning Commission spent 80 minutes on continued deliberations about what they would recommend to city council. Would they make a recommendation after all that time? Their discussion was aided by a set of materials that was not included in the original meeting packet for the October 10th meeting and was uploaded to the city's calendar under the Other tab for the meeting. 
The 36-page document begins with a draft resolution for approval, followed by a list of changes to the zoning code suggested by commissioners during their previous deliberations. There are also several specific map changes that had been previously discussed, plus a couple of others that had not. But for the first time, commissioners saw language for a new Core Neighborhoods Corridor Overlay District created at their direction. These would allow for additional height through a special exception process, but only if certain conditions are met. Here is the statement of intent for this section. These racially diverse and affordable neighborhoods historically met their day-to-day needs on the adjacent Preston and Cherry Avenue corridors. The Core Neighborhoods Corridor Overlay District is intended to support these neighborhoods and implement the comprehensive plan goals of encouraging the construction and continued existence of moderately priced housing, creating and preserving affordable housing, respecting the cultural heritage of the adjacent neighborhoods, supporting public health, encouraging economic development activities that provide desirable employment, and the overall promotion of a convenient and harmonious community. Commissioners first went through a series of recommendations for changes to the zoning code for council to consider. Each one is numbered, and I'm going to stay some highlights now, but you're also going to need a link to the current draft to make any sense of this by yourself. On building heights. The maximum height for a building in Residential A would be increased to 35 feet if there is one unit. The height could be as tall as 40 feet if there's more than one unit. Previously, there was no additional height for additional units. Fries said this would allow for people who want flat roofs. The base height for a building in Residential C would be increased to 40 feet, up from 35 feet. The allowed height would increase to 52 feet if there were affordable units on site. The bonus height for affordability in node mixed-use 8 would be increased from 142 feet to 156 feet. Same for corridor mixed-use 8. The bonus height for affordability for node mixed-use 10 would be increased from 170 feet to 184 feet. The bonus height for affordability for downtown mixed-use would be increased to 184 feet, or three more stories. The bonus height for affordability for downtown mixed-use would be increased to 184 feet. Previously, those limits would be up to the Board of Architectural Review. The bonus height for affordability in Industrial Flex 8 would be increased also to 156 feet. Now, here are some changes related to uses. At least one residential unit would be required to enable commercial uses in residential zones. However, this could be waived by a special use permit. Commercial uses allowed in Residential B and Residential C would be allowed by right on corner lots. There is a whole new section regulating homestays, a big change from the original final draft, which had phased them out. Now, there's a whole set of rules that were not there before. There was a discussion about number 49, which deals with transitions. The group Charlottesville Area Developers Roundtable, or CADRE, had asked for this language to be inserted. Transitions are not required along street lot lines where the right-of-way between the abutting zoning designations is greater than 29 feet. Commissioner Carl Schwartz pointed out that this could allow buildings higher than three stories on West Street. The commission agreed to not insert this language. There's a whole new section for a special exception permit that was not previously in the draft. More on that in just a few moments.
The suggested changes came from many sources. Commissioner Rory Stolzenberg sought to insert language for a church he said wanted to expand. CX3 or something, uh, it's next to RB over the corner. Um, and you can do a church that is the same height and setbacks or whatever in RB, but because it's R RX or CX3, it requires a transition, which like, they're, they're being punished for being in that higher zone, whereas if they were still RB, they would have been able to, to do it more flexibly. Stolzenberg got suggested language from Code Studio, and the rest of the commission agreed to make this change. Here now are some map changes. 5th Street extended, including the Willoughby Shopping Center, would be increased from Corridor Mixed Use 5 to Corridor Mixed Use 8. This had previously been discussed. The section of US 29 from the US 250 bypass to Greenbrier Road, well, almost, would be increased from Node Mixed Use 8 to Node Mixed Use 10. This had been previously discussed. Commissioners saw a new map for the Venable neighborhood that would increase areas close to the University of Virginia from residential mixed-use 3 to residential mixed-use 5. Commissioners discussed whether to make a portion of Grady Avenue that still remained RX3 to also be RX5, but ended up keeping it as is. Land owned by the University of Virginia Foundation and UVA on 10th and Wortland that has been designated for UVA's affordable housing initiative had been proposed as Civic, but will now be rezoned to Corridor Mixed Use 8. One map change that had not yet been seen or discussed regarded the core neighborhood overlay district. All of Preston Avenue between Rosser and McIntyre would be reduced to Corridor Mixed Use 3 including the site that had been proposed for Dairy Market Phase 3. Here's James Fries, the city's director of Neighborhood Development Services. We're proposing taking Preston Avenue and Cherry Avenue, and Cherry Avenue is already CX3, but making the length of Preston Avenue also CX3, and then implying this overlay district, which would basically say you have to get a special exception permit in order to get additional height in these districts, and to get that additional height, you have to do two of the things on that list at the bottom. To get that height, a developer would need to provide at least two items from a list. A quarter of the units must be affordable at 60% of the area median income. Affordably priced commercial space must be made available for neighborhood-focused uses. Space would be provided for educational training, job training, or other similar uses. Provide indoor space or outdoor space could be provided for use by the local community. There could be space provided for a community garden or urban agriculture. There could be sustainable design features, local art installations, or other features or amenities that support the intent of this section and the goals of the comprehensive plan. Such special exceptions would have to be approved by city council. A developer could still get additional height if they provided affordable units, just like every other part of town. I think we really have set this up as an either-or. Commissioner Lyle Sola-Yates had extensive notes about the idea and wanted more work done in anticipation of potential legal challenges. Specific, measurable uh, things that we can fight in court. For instance, he argued that each of the amenity spaces to be provided have a minimum of 2,500 square feet. He said the local art must be done in participation with a local art authority. Other commissioners weren't so keen on that last one. 
Commissioner Rory Stolzenberg said he would like provision of units guaranteed for households lower than 60% of AMI. I would assume the idea is we're pushing people to incorporate some LIHTC element or right. a PHA element or something into right. their project. LIHTC stands for Low Income Housing Tax Credit. Stolzenberg didn't actually say what PHA stands for. It could be either Piedmont Housing Alliance or Public Housing Authority. Commissioners reached consensus to reduce the amount of affordable units in item number one from 25% to 20%. We'll come back to this point later on in this segment. One of the major points of the entire Seville Plans Together initiative is to encourage and guarantee subsidized units where affordability has not always been preserved. How will success be measured? What will the rules be? Many of these rules will be codified and explained in the Affordable Dwelling Unit Manual rather than in the code itself. Still, some high-level rules will be in the body of the zoning ordinance itself. Commissioner Phil Duranzio said suggesting change number 38 for the Term of Affordability section. Affordable units created for sale must be sold to households with incomes less than 60% of the area median income. The language reviewed would require a deed restriction giving the City of Charlottesville or a qualifying nonprofit organization a right of first refusal to purchase the home upon its first resale. A question that sprang from this moment was a discussion of whether the Planning Commission has to make recommendation on the Affordable Dwelling Unit Manual itself, as well as the Development Review Procedures Manual. Sharon Pandek, the city's outside council, said yes, but that vote did not have to happen at the October 10th session. They don't have to be in this particular uh, resolution tonight, but I do think it would be useful for them to make recommendations to council. Duranzio asked if the Planning Commission should make a recommendation on an idea for a new district that he had brought to Freeze. At least one commissioner thought he meant the new Core Neighborhoods Corridor Overlay District. That's No, yet another one. I'm sorry? The overlay oh, we spoke, yeah. The, the, the neighborhood overlay, yeah. yeah. Freeze cleared up the matter. I met with uh, Commissioner Duranzio in his capacity representing the Housing Advisory Committee today, and we talked about a new district that would, um, whether it's overlay or a base district, I think my preference is a base district, but it basically mirrors the R8 district that we've proposed, but kind of tamps it down for these anti-displacement areas. Fries said this would mimic the original intent of the sensitive communities area that were proposed in the comprehensive plan that would restrict development rights in certain areas. Only one additional housing unit would be allowed if affordability provisions were not being sought. And then it would allow up to six units if all of the bonus units were affordable. However, the language was not ready for this meeting, and Fries wanted to know if the Planning Commission could make a recommendation based on the concept, if not the details. Pandak asked if she had been sent this second idea for a new district, and Fries said no. It was a conversation today at lunchtime where we, and, and what we're trying to address is really the comments raised by council at the last meeting. That meeting was the October 3rd meeting by city council where they discussed anti-displacement efforts. I've not had a chance to write about that one yet, but Pandek weighed in. I think you could approve recommendations tonight with respect to the zoning ordinance and the map 
much along the lines of your attachment A, as I will call it, that you just discussed. And then you could say, in addition, the Planning Commission um, makes the following recommendation about, conceptually, about the district. Pandex said the language would have to be reviewed to see whether the details of this second district would need to formally go through the Planning Commission. We need to flesh out some yeah. of the concepts in this. Simply saying we have also this new district, in my mind, is not sufficient to do anything more than take it up later. Just a reminder, we're discussing material that none of us have reviewed or considered. Because it doesn't exist right. beyond a conversation that was had. Yeah, yes. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm just saying that conceptually I'd have a difficulty saying let's move forward with this with a pending district and or overlay, which might be a significant portion of this. Commissioners discussed whether to wait another week to flesh out the concept further or to send it along to council as just the concept. Duranzio said he was opposed to doing so without fleshing out the details first before the Planning Commission signed off on the next steps. I want a whole code, not a code full of holes. And it seems to me that we're putting a, that's leaving a fairly substantial hold of a very, very important matter that has not gotten, frankly, the uh, bandwidth that it really needs to get. With about 20 minutes to go in the meeting, Free said he felt there were too many items that needed to be locked down before the Planning Commission took up a recommendation. Based on the level of discussion we're at, I, I'm kind of inclined, and I know Mrs. is probably going to hate me for this, but to say that we need to go ahead and capture all of this and bring it back to a subsequent meeting. A final meeting to take a vote on that recommendation will be held on October 18th. That will give time for Duranzio's idea to be further developed for review. There was a brief discussion of this late Tuesday, including establishing what the boundaries for this area would be. Other changes may also be made between now and it being published in another Planning Commission agenda. Commissioner Habab said he was concerned about this approach and repeated what he had previously said when this idea didn't make it into the zoning. It gives me the same heartache that we had, I had before about essentially down zoning instead of communities. It's a, a negative on their generational wealth building. But, yeah, so one of the, what, what this is informed by in part is that there is no debate in the anti-displacement zones about the preference. The preference is way over on the side of preserve my neighborhood over the wealth issue. Commissioner Schwartz was also concerned, and it is certain this will be a further discussion on October 18th. The commission did not make a recommendation and technically continued the meeting rather than adjourning. This point was Sharon Pandak insisted on that language. To wrap up this segment, one quick property transaction from this month. On October 6th, a couple purchased 905 Page Street for $600,000. The lot and a previous structure sold for $30,000 in September of 2017 to Loft Realty and Investments, LLC. Another entity called Viator, LLC, bought the lot in February 2019 for $80,000 and built a structure. This sold for $435,000 in January 2020 and $577,000 in June of 2022. Could it be that some know how to make money and the rest of us just live here?
for now. Next up in my coverage, I'll write up the City Council's anti-displacement conversation from October 3rd. I will also hope to write up the City Council's discussion on population from October 18th. So much to write. Stay tuned. the end of number 588. Would you like to know when the next edition is coming out? If you've not seen one for a day or two, check out my notes on Substack to see if I've opted to take some time off or if I'm working on something else. That's where you'll see an announcement of my decision from yesterday to wait until today to publish what you've just listened to. The city is about to make a tremendous change that will affect everyone who lives here and the details matter. You're reading this because you tend to agree. I am grateful for the hundreds of subscribers who have helped me get to this point, and I'm grateful for those who have yet to do so, and I know that they will. I'm in the early stages of setting up an internship to get some assistance and to help train people to do this kind of work. I think up-close journalism that covers the municipal beat is crucial to democracy. No one's watching. Who knows what's going to happen? Special thanks to Ting for their unique sponsorship. They will match the initial payment, whether it be $5 a month, $50 a year, or $200 a year. Now, on to the next one, 589. Goodbye!